Holy Spirit, we ask that you would apply the word to our hearts and open our eyes to the truth of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and the great sacrifice he made while we were yet sinners. In his name we pray. Amen. A New Testament reading from Paul's epistle letter to the Colossians, beginning three, chapter three, beginning with verse one, the word of the Lord. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jenny. They told me I was a freak. Casey Cashin had a rough childhood. His father left when he was just four years old. He was abused by an older cousin. In the playground at school, while other kids were playing, he would sit by himself and play. No one wanted to be Casey's friend. He was a victim of such intense bullying that teachers were concerned. One boy would regularly punch him right in the face. And every day, he he was just working to avoid this bully. And it didn't always work. One day, he was thrown down a set of stairs. He says, people would just laugh at me and make fun of me. They'd say things like, you're weird. You're a freak. You're gross. He felt like an animal. We've got a photo of him. Can we get Casey's pick here? Uh, Maybe we can. There is a photo somewhere. Uh, uh, uh. And church wasn't any better than school. Um, There he is. Uh, Casey learned in his prosperity gospel church that if you're rich, it's because God loves you and is blessing you for your great faith. But if you're poor, you're like Casey and obviously don't have faith. The pastor wouldn't even let his own son play with Casey and his brother. The message was clear that they were trash. As he began high school, he began hearing whispers in his head. If the light rejects you, it said, come to the darkness. He was a gifted writer, and his journal that he would write every day grew increasingly dark and increasingly concerning with horrible fantasies of unleashing violence. He was alone, he was unloved, and he began talking to the voices. By his senior year of high school, he was in a bad place. One night he cried himself to sleep. He woke up at two or three o'clock in the morning and the voices were shouting at him. And He went down in his tears to the kitchen and he grabbed a chef's knife out of the butcher block and he went upstairs to his bathroom and he sat there and he wondered, would he actually do it? He just wanted the pain to stop. He said, I have nothing to look forward to. No one cares for me. No one loves me. No matter how hard I try, he thought, all I know is pain and hurt and misery and loneliness. Give me one reason why I should not kill myself. Some of you have been there. People you care about have been there. Some of you can relate to the despair, to the hopelessness, to the feeling that you're such a freak and everybody hates you. And you're all alone. And you have no hope. Jesus speaks to people like Casey. We're going to look at a passage 
recorded by St. John in the fifth chapter of his Gospel, in which Jesus talks about people like Casey and people like me and people like you. It's a passage that I've been thinking about theologically for nearly 20 years. Uh, Years ago in my doctoral work, I worked under a Greek Orthodox theologian and she made me read lots of books that I think have given me some insight into what we're about to read. This is the Gospel according to John chapter 5. I will read verses 21 to 27 because this is Christ's good news to us. Jesus says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who doesn't honor the Son doesn't honor the Father who sent them. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself and He has given Him authority to judge because He is the Son of Man. What we see here, first of all, we see God's eternal purpose in salvation. God's eternal purpose in saving us is in order to glorify His Son, Jesus. See, we tend to think that this is all about us. We say things, and it's, it's not that it's wrong, but we say things, I've said things, uh, like uh, if you were the only person on the planet, God would have still sent Jesus to die for you. He loves you that much, and that's true. But the Bible's emphasis is a little different. God wanted so many people to worship and praise His Son Jesus, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, who who is Himself begotten of the Father eternally. He is the Lord and He wants all the nations to worship Jesus. And so He sent His Son down into the world to scoop up a people for Himself to worship and praise and glorify and honor His Son. It is God's eternal purpose to glorify His Son and that is why He has saved you if you have Jesus. It's all about him. And it, it, it's an incredibly exclusive claim that Jesus makes here to be the son of God, to be really equal with the father in terms of being begotten of him eternally. Uh, it's an incredibly exclusive claim. Jesus says in verse 23, he who doesn't have the son doesn't have the father. That's, think about that. Jesus has just thrown every human religion in history under the bus. By saying, if you don't have him, you don't have the Father. It's an incredibly exclusive claim that salvation is exclusively in me, he is saying. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. It's like in the book of Acts when the apostles say that there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given to people by which we must be saved. Jesus claims to be Lord, and and once he makes that exclusive claim like this, there aren't too many ways to get around it. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis in, in Mere Christianity says this 
says it this way um, in talking about the exclusivity of, of Christ's claims. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something far worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. You see, friends, if we rule out that Jesus was an evil man and we rule out that he had a psychiatric condition, then that leaves us facing the fact that, that he makes these claims attested to in all of the Gospels and all of the early literature uh, it's why they wanted him dead. And, and if he is, in fact, the Son of God, then that means God's eternal purpose in saving his, us is that we would honor him, glorify him, serve him, sacrifice for him, pour out our lives and our treasure for the name of Jesus that he would be exalted. That means yielding to him your life and your sexuality, and your time, glorifying him with the way you go about your business, with the way you speak about and treat your enemies, glorifying the son in the way that you drive to church Sunday morning and drive home afterwards, and the conversation you have in the car, glorifying him in, in your concern for the poor and the underprivileged and the marginalized, glorifying him by testifying publicly to your faith in him. It's the eternal purpose of God to bring glory and honor and praise to his son. That's why he saves us. And that shows me, I know, my biggest need. Because when I look in my heart, when I'm really honest and do the fruit inspection and open it all up and see what's going on in there, friends, I don't like what I see very often. Because what I see is that after you know 29 years of following Jesus, sin is still very powerfully at present and at work in my soul telling me, no, I don't want to yield everything to Jesus. I don't want to sacrifice everything. I want to build my own life, God. And that shows me how much I need that very salvation because Jesus is not pointing us inward to our sin, but outward to him because we see, first of all, God's eternal purpose is to glorify his son, Jesus. Secondly, we see the objective promise of Jesus laid out here. We see it in the coming age and we see it in this present age. In the coming age, listen to what Jesus says. He says in verse 25, I tell you the truth. This is his objective promise. A time is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's a promise of future salvation that a day will come after you have practiced dying every night as you give up consciousness and trust your life to God, that there will be a day when you will have to do that one last time, when you will have to give up consciousness and trust that Jesus Christ was telling the truth and that you will rise again. You will hear His voice. He will be speaking to you and you will have eternal life because Jesus promises. It's all we've got. 
And yet it's not just in the coming age. It breaks into this life. In verse 25, he says, I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come. Salvation is today. It's present tense. It's here and now. He had just said in verse 24 that whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Did you hear that? Not will have, but has in the present tense. Has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. That, that's here and now. And that means that we have a basis for an assurance of salvation here and now. Um, on this Reformation Sunday, uh, I want to acknowledge that there are Christian traditions that historically have denied the possibility of knowing that you're saved. Uh, they have... They will, for example, argue that you really can't know until Judgment Day whether you're going to be saved or damned because you don't know how God is going to weigh your relative faithfulness against uh, all of the demerits. Um, uh, they will argue that having an assurance of salvation, if you could know that you will be saved, then that would undercut your motivation toward a life of Christian sacrifice and obedience. And, and I would question whether a motivation to obedience that's all grounded in my own selfish desire to preserve myself and use God toward that end, whether that's obedience at all, uh, I, I think that's, that's you know, very questionable. And yet, because uh, what the gospel wants in us is a motivation that's driven by, by love for God, uh, by a desire to please him and trust him. Uh, but we're not, that's all hypothetical. We're not dealing with a hypothetical. Hypothetical questions end when the matter has been settled by a higher authority. And Jesus speaks into this one in this passage quite clearly as recorded by John. We have it on no lesser authority than Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, that you can know that you will be saved in the coming age. Jesus is here giving an objective basis for that assurance, saying that that basis is not in your faithfulness or your perseverance, but in the faithfulness of him who promises. Uh, a perfect tense here in the Greek uh, means where he says he is crossed over, meaning uh, from death to life, meaning you are currently in the present in a state of having previously crossed over the bridge from death to eternal life. We've got a picture of a bridge. Uh, if you don't know what a bridge looks like, that's, um, that's not the one in Alton. Um, you, could, you could be on one side of this bridge, and then you cross over to the other side. And once you have crossed over to the other side, which side of the bridge are you on? The other side. This is, this is not complicated. This does not require footnotes. This does not require nuance. Jesus is saying, you were dead. And then you believed me. And you crossed over to the other side. That other side is eternal life, he says. It's an accomplished fact. You can have that assurance. Thank you. You can know because the promise of God, Jesus says, you have eternal life and will not be condemned. It's like when St. Paul says in Romans 8 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I want you to hear it's exactly at the point of your worst unfaithfulness that you need to hear this. Because that's at the point at which it will unlock in you love. It's, it's right after you've had the big, nasty, long, 
drawn out, dragged out argument with the spouse in which you said some horrible things that you will never be able to unsay. It's exactly at that point you need to hear this. It's, it's exactly at that point when you have tongue lashed your child in a way that you were when you were a child and you know the damage that you've probably just done. It's exactly at that point when after months of faithfulness you've slipped back into pornography and you haven't even deleted your browser history. It's at that point you need to hear Jesus Christ saying, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has crossed over from death to life and shall not be condemned. It's exactly at that point you need to hear the word of God through St. Paul coming to you saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the gospel, friends, that Jesus saves sinners. It is Christ alone. Him alone who does it. He does it all. It is not a joint venture. It's, and, and, and John here wants you to know that you're saved. He writes in his letter, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he says, to the Christians, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? In order that you may know you have eternal life. Friends, that's an assurance that only Jesus can give. And remember, it's not about the strength of your faith. It's about the direction of your faith. You say, Greg, my faith isn't very strong. That's fine. Jesus says if you have faith as much as a mustard seed. That's a really little bit of faith, but faith in him. Uh, you know, it's like if you were to walk, you know, you, you and a friend are in a, in, in a maze, and it's like one of those really serious mazes that's not really legal, where you could actually die. And, and you're going through this maze, and you end up walking through a door, and it's a round room, and the room starts spinning around, and there are two doors. And you and your friend are like, well, which, which door do we go in? Well, I think that's the way we came, so that's got to be the way to salvation. The other guy's like, no, I think that's a fire-breathing dragon that will burn me to death. I think it's this one. And, and there's this argument, this disagreement, and, and this guy over here, he is certain, like, this is the door. This will save us. This will rescue us. And the other guy's like, eh, I think you might be right. I don't know. I think it's this one, but I, I, my hunch is it's this one. I, I, I think I could go, but you're probably right. I know I'm going to go to my death, but I have to go out this one. And this guy's like, you're an idiot. It's this one. You need to come with me. This is the path of salvation. And so they both finally just open their door and walk through, and this guy is burned to death by a fire-breathing dragon, and this guy goes, home and watches Netflix. And so the question you have to answer, though, you've heard this before, which one had the stronger faith? This guy. But it was faith in the wrong door. This guy's faith was weak. It was hesitant. It was wavering. It was wishy-washy, limp noodle faith in Jesus. Jesus says, I'm the door. Because it's not about the strength of your faith, it's about the direction. It's like if you were on top of, you know, we have a, a, one of our employees who uh, uh, accidentally slipped down a roof once and it was bad. Um, he's okay now. But, uh, you know, if you can imagine, you're on a roof, you're replacing some shingles from a hailstorm that was bad. Not as bad as like the rain last yesterday, but um, it was bad. And, and you're sliding down this roof. You've lost your grip, and there's nothing to hold on to, and you know you're going to fall a couple stories and probably break all sorts of bones and keep the orthopedist in really good business. And you're freaking out, and as you're going down, you see a tree limb, and it's not very big. It's just like this big around. You have no idea if it'll support your rate, but you lunge with all your energy to grab a hold of that tree limb, and, and it holds. 
And the question is, um, to what degree was the strength of your faith key to saving you? Well, it wasn't about your faith. It was about the strength of the branch to which you grabbed hold. Jesus says, I am the branch. It's not about the size of your faith, but the direction. Uh, and that's everything because God's purpose is to glorify his son. That's why he saves us. And we see this objective promise of Jesus that he will save. And you can be assured that you do have eternal life based not on your faithfulness, but his faithfulness as a faithful savior, Jesus Christ. And yet we see a third thing here. We see that the locus of our salvation is in the person of Jesus. Uh, the, the locus meaning the, the location, where it's centered, where it's found. Jesus is the locus or the effective location geographically of our salvation. Uh, let me lay this out. Note that Jesus has life in himself. Jesus says that in verse 26, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And historically, uh, how Christians have understood this is that God the Father and God the Son are co-equal and consubstantial. They are uh, equal in glory and honor. Not, neither one of them is more God than the other. Both exist from eternity outside of space and time. Both are equally God. And, and so when we see that Jesus says that the Father granted the Son to have life in himself, what we understand by that is that the Father is the ground of being and that the Son eternally uh, is eternally begotten of the Father, meaning he wasn't born at a point in history. This is outside of history. It's always been this way, that the Father has always been the Father and the Son has always been the Son and the Son's being has always been grounded in the Father because the Father eternally gives the Son life in himself. Now, um, as an aside, let me say, if you are a brand new Christian or you're just exploring this, um, then it's okay if you don't pick up on half of what I'm getting ready to say because um, you're still on spiritual milk and spiritual milk is really good and I hope you're getting a lot of good spiritual milk here because milk builds strong bodies. Uh, um, but uh, we're getting ready to talk about a little bit of spiritual meat and I don't want you to choke on a pork chop because you're still on milk. Um, let me just say that. Um, within Christian theology... The Father being the ground of the being, the Son eternally progressing from the Father. Um, uh, that's why in the Nicene Creed we say that the Son was begotten, not made. Made would mean he's a creature. Eternally begotten means he, he's always been God, the, the Son. Uh, and that relationship and oneness is eternal. But it's the Father who eternally begets the Son. Uh, his Son, uh, it's a necessary act of God in which he eternally brings into existence the Son's Personal subsistence, meaning that Jesus has life in himself that is grounded in the Father. That's why in John chapter 1, verse 4, it writes, In him, that is, the Logos, Jesus, the Son of God, before his incarnation, in him was a life. He had it in himself, pre-existing before the incarnation. And, and Jesus, therefore, mediates the Father to us so that if you want to see the face of God, you look at the face of Jesus. Since Jesus is God the Son, though, his incarnation then becomes the locus of our salvation, the, the center of our salvation. It is within the incarnation of Jesus, within his physical body, that our salvation exists because it's there that divine nature and our human nature are united within the physical body of Jesus. Uh, and remember that that was a permanent change. There had been appearances of God throughout history. Uh, theologians call them theophanies. They are temporary, like the burning bush that Moses saw that said, I am, 
uh, or or the you know the, the cloud through the wilderness or the fire uh, during the Exodus. But those were appearances of God. But the incarnation of Jesus, Jesus becoming flesh, is a permanent change. It is not temporary. That's why Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and is seated at his right hand interceding for us now. Jesus is still a man as well as God the Son. We see that in Acts 17, 2 Timothy 2. Uh, and that's why the book of, 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 of Acts is so concerned about, this is going somewhere, is so concerned about the ascension of Jesus, that they saw him rise bodily, physically, to the right hand of the Father because in his incarnation he was transporting our salvation to the very throne of God. You know, if you imagine uh, that picture of, of, of the ascension of Jesus, imagine in heaven all of the heavenly hosts, all of the angels this, in this parallel universe of God that intersects and overwraps our own cosmos of space and time. Imagine Jesus sent out in abject humiliation, sent from his throne to become a creature, to become a mere human, and a human that's subject to the effects of the fall, to suffering and sorrow and death, sent out with a mission to be humiliated and scourged and tortured and murdered with a mission to absorb the wrath of God in humanity's place. How shameful it must have seemed to all the heavenly array. And then to hear that Christ had died, but that through His death, the curtain within the temple of God was torn in two, that barrier that kept humanity from, from, from the Creator Himself. To hear that sins had now been forgiven. To hear that Jesus had risen from death. That death itself was defeated. To realize that Christ was now the hero of the human race and the Savior of the whole cosmos. Healing in His body the rift caused by the fall. Joining God and man together in salvation within His person to know that the Son of God had completed His mission and was now returning triumphant. Imagine the joy in heaven when the resurrected Christ returned just as He had been sent, only now permanently incarnate, permanently united to human nature and returning in glory. You can only imagine the triumphal procession, the crowning of Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords, the taking up of His throne at the Father's side as Christ is revered as the locus of salvation as all creation bows before His name, friends. This is why we lift up our hearts to the Lord. It's in Colossians 3 that we see this pictured and explained so perfectly that our salvation is within the body of Jesus in heaven right now. Colossians 3. Did you pick up on this? Since then, Paul writes, you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is where? Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Did you hear that? You are right now wherever Jesus is. You are hidden in Christ. You're therefore in God because Christ is in God because His humanity is united with His divinity so that wherever He is, He takes you with Him. You are in His very heart. It was John Murray who said, union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It's the locus of our salvation. The geographic location is Jesus, Christ alone. You died and your lives are now hidden with Christ in God. 
164 times in Paul's 13 letters alone in the New Testament. 164 times he uses this language of being united to Christ, in Christ, buried in Christ, raised with Christ, in him, in the beloved, uh, union with Christ. It's what Peter talks about in 2 Peter chapter 1 where he says that he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, be united to Christ and therefore to the Father. Ephesians 2, Paul says, God made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, we often focus on the work of Christ on our behalf, and rightly so. He was incarnate for us, he died for us, he bled, he rose for us, but But the Bible's focus is not on the plan of salvation, but on the person of salvation. It is in Him. There is no other name by which we may be saved. The story is not that God came down to earth, did a bunch of stuff to save us, and then went to heaven and left us alone. The story is that God came down to earth, did a bunch to save us, grabbed you up, scooped you into his arms, and took you to the very throne room of God so that every spiritual blessing is now yours. Where? In Christ. You died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So lift up your hearts, because the Bible says our hearts are at the right hand of the Father himself. It's beauty. It's compelling. It compelled Paul and John, to serve Christ their entire lives. One of them died a painful death because of the beauty of this story of salvation in Christ being swooped up into Him, partakers of the divine nature through His promises, united to Him as branches flowing out of a tree, married to Him as the bride to a groom. Now we're truly bone of His bone and and flesh of His flesh. John Calvin said, we see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care, he writes, not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. He writes, if we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is in him. If we seek any gift of the Holy Spirit, it will be found in Christ's anointing. If you seek strength, it lies in his dominion. If purity in his conception, if gentleness in his birth, for by his birth he was made like us in all respects that we might learn that he might learn to feel our pain. If we seek redemption, it lies in his suffering. If acquittal in his condemnation, if remission of the curse in his cross, if satisfaction in his sacrifice, if purification, it's in his blood. If reconciliation, it's in his descent to hell. If mortification of your own flesh, it lies in his tomb. If you need newness of life, it's in Christ's resurrection. If you need immortality, it's in his resurrection. If inheritance of every blessing, it's in Christ's kingdom. If untroubled expectation of judgment, it is in the power given to Jesus Christ to judge. In short, he writes, since rich store of every good abounds in him let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other Casey Cashin had the chef's knife and he knew it would be easy he said I have nothing to look forward to no one cares for me no one loves me he thought no matter how hard I try 
All I know is the pain and the hurt and the misery and the loneliness. Give me one reason why I shouldn't do it. And at that very moment, Casey heard another voice and it said this, Do not do this. I have plans for you. He put the knife away. About this time, his brother Kyle and a youth minister named Hung began asking him to come to their Christian meetings. Casey refused the invitations for months, but he and Hung were both avid gamers, and so they found common ground there. And week after week, Hung would come and hang out in Casey's oppressively dark bedroom and play video games. Finally, Casey went to a meeting. The speaker that night happened to be a plumber. He told a story about being called to a home where the entire septic system had exploded. He then tied the metaphor to the story of Jesus wading through our filth to embrace us incarnate. Casey couldn't believe it. He thought, is this real? Is it true? Jesus loves someone like me? I'm an evil guy. I mean, the things that have gone through my mind, the violence I have dreamt up, is it even possible that Jesus could love someone like me? And up to this point, Casey didn't really know if there was any other option. Uh, he had been okay with going to hell. He had believed in hell, and he figured he'd almost certainly go there through one means or another. But now he thought, man, if this is true, that Jesus could love an evil person like me, that's someone I would be willing to give my life to. He said, all I'd ever wanted was for someone to love me, for someone to care about me. He says, it was at that moment that I became a different person. He crossed over from death to life. He received the free gift of eternal life. For the first time in his life, he believed Jesus when Jesus said, I love you. He began working with Hung. For the next 10 years, he worked on a suicide prevention hotline. We've got a photo of him. Uh, worked with the poor. Uh, that's him on the left. Uh, a new man. Now he works in Compton and other low-income districts around Los Angeles. And it's, it's actually his quirky uniqueness that actually attracts rather than repelling people. He said this. He says, I grew up in a single-parent home. We were poor. I was in abusive situations. I had no hope and I had no future. And I was always told by every voice around me, you will never amount to anything. You are trash. You have nothing, nothing going for you. But Jesus said otherwise. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the one who promises, you are the one who assures, you are the one who gives us grace, and you are all we have. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We consecrate to you the elements of this table, this bread and this cup, that you would minister the gospel to us as individuals and the gospel to us as your family, as your church. Have mercy on us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.